2018 was an exciting day for some preteen and teenage boys that ranged in ages between 11 to 16. They were a part of a soccer team in northern Thailand, and they had a birthday party later that day. In the meantime, after their practice, they and their assistant coach decided to head off to a cave to do some exploring before the party. Thirteen of them, twelve boys and their assistant coach, entered into the cave that day. Shortly thereafter, heavy rainfall partially flooded the cave system, blocking their way out and trapping them deep within. Efforts to locate the group were hampered by rising water levels and strong currents, and no contact was made for nearly two weeks. Imagine your child in a cave. You can't contact them. You have no clue what's going on for two weeks. Efforts to locate the group were hampered by rising water levels and strong currents. No contact was made, and they, people feared for the worst. And some didn't even think the rescue effort was worth the risk. The cave rescue effort expanded into a massive operation amid intense worldwide public interest. Any, anyone remember this story at all? Got a handful of you that do. And involving international rescue teams. On July 2nd, after advancing through narrow passages and muddy waters, two British divers found the group alive on an elevated rock about two and a half miles into the cave mouth, or from the cave mouth. And so that wasn't the end of the story, though, because now you found them, they're alive. Now they have to figure out how to get 13 survivors out of the cave. Rescue organizers discussed various options for extracting the group, including do we teach basic underwater diving skills to enable them to, to, to get the rescue? Do we wait until the new, a new entrance to the cave was found or drilled? Uh, or should we wait for floodwaters to subside by the end of the monsoon season, but that could be months later? Policemen with sniffing dogs, they, they searched the surface above the openings for alternative entrances to the cave systems below. Drones and robots were also used in the search, but no technology was strong enough for, to, to find people that far underground. Five days after they entered the cave, divers entered to try to find them. But unfortunately, with continued flooding and strong currents from the early monsoons, they had to get out of the cave, and, and many would have stopped looking for them. They would have deemed it too dangerous. Sacrifice was too great. The situation was hopeless. The journey through the cave to the boys took six hours against the current and five hours to exit with the current even for experienced divers. Let's say most of us would have died or been incapable of that. After days of pumping water from the cave system from all the rain, the rescue teams hastened to get to the group out of the cave and, 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 and they, and before the next monsoon rain, which was actually expected to bring additional downpour around July 11th, which means that they had just days to get them out before another catastrophic rainfall of the monsoon season would flood the cave. The rescue effort involved more than 10,000 people 
including more than 100 divers, scores of rescue workers, representatives from about 100 governmental agencies, 900 police officers, 2,000 soldiers, 10 police helicopters, 7 ambulances, more than 700 diving cylinders, and pumping more than 1 billion liters of water from the cave, which is the equivalent of 400 Olympic-sized pools. Farmers had to give permission to flood their crops and to fill their fields with water, knowing that that would be catastrophic for them, but they knew we have to contribute something. Go ahead and do it. Finally, on July 8th, the first four boys were rescued by the amazing divers and their team. On July 9th, another four boys were rescued. And finally, on July 10th, three, the last three boys and their coach were rescued from the cave. Even though the entire team and the, the, the assistant coach, they, they, were, they survived, they were rescued with minimal injuries, there was a price to pay for the rescue. Not just the crops that were lost and the, and the water that was pumped and the people and the volunteers and the, the, and the cost involved, but there was also the cost of life. Saman Kunin, a 37-year-old former Royal Thai Navy SEAL, died of asphyxi- I can't even say it, asphyxiation during an attempted rescue. On July 6th, the following year in December 2019, rescue diver and and Thai Navy SEAL Beirut Pakbara died of a blood infection contracted during the operation. The price was steep. People gave their lives so that others could live. They were only alive with a second chance of life because of two reasons. Number one, Someone was willing to give their life so they could live. And number two, someone who loved them came looking for them. And this reminds me of the words to an old song by the Crab family. Take a look at this video that the SEAL team divers put together throughout to capture kind of their entire journey of the rescue. I added, our team added the song by the Crab family. But I just want you to see a little bit of the clips of, uh, of what they were facing and also listening to the words of this song. One night while alone, life's raging sea, it looked as if I would suffer defeat as the blackness of night. Closed off the light, my heart sank with fear. My desperate cry rang out with pride. All I could see was no hope inside. With faith all but gone, I met the one who came looking for me. He came looking for me. was near to rescue my soul calm all my fears now I'm safe from all harm since I met the one who came looking 
I drifted so far Would anyone care That I'd soon be lost I knew my destruction Was a matter of time But Jesus appeared Said this one is mine Now I'm safe with no harm For he walked through the storm He came looking for me He came looking was near to rescue my soul come all my fears now I'm safe from all harm since I met the one who came looking for me This was the moment that they found them and let them know that some people were coming. They couldn't get them out that day, but that was when they came for the rescue. And today, I just want to speak on this topic, lost and no one looking, lost and no one looking. Jesus, God, we love you. We have aimed to worship you. Certainly, probably you're worthy a lot more of anything that we can give you, but we certainly have raised our 
extended our hands and we've raised our voices and we've focused on you, Lord. I, I pray that our minds and our hearts would be open and ready for what it is you want to speak through your word. Lord Jesus, that you would just do miraculous things. Speak to us, Lord God. Make us what you want us to be. Help us, Lord. Mold and shape us on this journey. In your name we pray. Amen. Multiple times, Jesus succinctly summarizes why he came. He says in Mark 1.38, we must go to other towns as well, and I will preach to them too because that's why I came. And then in Luke, he says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus wanted the lost to be saved. And his plan was, I'm going to take this message that I'm bringing to every single town. I'm not just going to stay here. I'm not just going to have a good church here, but I'm going to go looking for people. I'm going to go find people. I'm going to go to towns where there are maybe no one is looking for them, and I'm going to be the one to look for them. And so he went looking for the hurt and the lost and the broken and the helpless and the hopeless. He never called us. I think we should have great church. I'm thanking God for confidence conferences and camps and things, but he never called us to just have good church. He never called us to just go to conferences and camps and look to feed ourselves. He didn't call us just to that. He said, I'm calling you to be like me. I'm commissioning you to go reach a world. I'm, I went looking for lost people. I would go to the next town. Certainly, Jesus could have just planted something in one place, and everybody could have come to one place, and they could have had some amazing church every single time that they got together. But he said, it's not just about that. I'm going to go out looking for someone that's hurt, lost, looking, hurt, broken, helpless. And so he went looking for those people, people to rescue, people to save. He was willing to go where they were. And so in one parable, Jesus says in Luke 14, 23, he says, the Lord said, unto his servant, go into the highways, into the hedges, and compel them, meaning exert every effort, compel them to come so that my house can be filled. He was not talking about just one local congregation, but he was saying, understand the mission, and the mission is to go into towns looking for people who have not yet experienced this. And so I recently heard a statement that I have not been able to get out of my head, and I probably will never be able to get it out of my head, because it gives me a burden to do more than what I'm doing right now. And that is this, there is only one thing worse than being lost, and it's this, being lost and no one is looking for you. I want you to just take that in for a second. Because how many people right now in our society connected to us, related to us, living on our street, are lost? That's not a derogatory term, meaning they don't understand who Jesus Christ is, that God took on flesh, dwelt among us, paid a price for our sin on the cross, rose again. He wants to send his spirit. He wants to wash away our sins. He's interested in who they are as an individual. There are people that don't understand that. They have not heard that. They don't believe that. And so for me, I'm going, there's only one thing Worse than being lost is when you're lost and no one is looking for you. 
Imagine if people would have given up on those boys and on that coach. Imagine if they would have listened to the naysayers that the situation is hopeless. It'll never happen. They've gone in too far. You're not going to get them out. I'm sure there's people in this room or maybe watching online that you can relate to this, that other people looked at you and said, don't bother with them. Oh, they're never going to change. They've been this way forever. He's got no hope. She's always going to be that way. And here you are, serving God, faithfully serving Him, coming to a church, worshiping Him, doing what you can in ministry, doing what you can to to, to reach people. Thank God that someone came looking for you. And I'm thankful that the Bible records stories of individuals, single individuals like the Apostle Paul, the woman at the well, the lame man, Zacchaeus, a woman with an issue of blood. He went looking for single individuals. He would go out of his way. He would stop crowds. He would interact with people that no one else saw any value in. He, he, he went through Samaria. He stopped for the woman with the issue of blood. He talked to a man up in a tree. He a, a man who is persecuting Christians, he says, I'm going to send a light that's just going to blind that man because I see value in who he is. And I thank God that he's willing to look for us. He places importance on every person, every soul, every life. I have people tell me sometimes, well, do we really need a church in that area? There's not really much population. There's only a couple thousand people in that area. And I go, that's a couple thousand people that matter to Jesus Christ. What would, what would happen if all of us would just start doing this? If we would just start walking around in our neighborhoods and praying over homes and neighbors? And you don't have to do anything crazy, but what if you just went on a walk and you said, God, I pray, touch these houses. God, let be present. Let, let, let this neighborhood, let your presence and power be here. Lord, that you begin to open doors for me. You might say, well, this feels weird. I don't have a burden for this area. I just live here. I have a lot going on in my life. But you find as you begin to walk and you begin to pray, God's going to start to put a burden inside of you. God's going to start to allow you to have crucial conversations with neighbors that start to wave at you and, and walk by you. And you start to say, now, hey, I've seen you a lot. What's your name? And all of a sudden, you have an open door to converse with someone and talk to them about who Jesus Christ is. I, re- I recently got to thinking about the Old Testament story of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you remember, Abraham had chosen to live in the plains, but his nephew Lot and Lot's family chose the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah had gotten so wicked that God sends his angels to tell Abraham, hey, get, get ready. I'm getting ready to destroy this city. These cities, are, it, it's, they're pagan. They're, they're so sinful. Everything's wicked, and I'm, just, I'm destroying them with fire and brimstone. And God didn't have to tell Abraham this, but his grace, in his grace, he reaches out to, to Abraham. And those angels also end up going into that city and getting uh, Abraham's nephew Lot and his family out. Unfortunately, Lot's wife turns back and turns into a pillar of salt. But before that day of destruction, before it arrives, God shows up to Abraham and he lets him know his plans. And this is recorded in Genesis 18. And just look at this account, this conversation. Sometimes we think of God as like the God, ruler of the universe. You're out there, oh great God. But look at this personal relationship. The Bible talks about how Abraham would go to the place that he stood before the Lord on a daily basis. There was a relationship there. Look at this interaction. Verse 20, God tells Abraham, I've heard a great outcry, Sodom and Gomorrah. Their sin is just so flagrant. I'm, I'm going to see if their actions are as wicked as I've heard. If not, I want to know. He says, the other men turned and 
headed towards Sodom, but the Lord remained before Abraham, which means that there was three of them and two turned to walk away. And it says, the Bible says, Abraham remained yet before the Lord, which from what we can tell, this is probably a theophany where God takes on some form of flesh to have this appearance, this interaction with Abraham. And Abraham approached him. He says, are you going to sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? I mean, I'm trying to get my, wrap my brain around this. You're going to kill innocent people with, with good people, with wicked people. And so he says, suppose, verse 24, that you find 50 righteous people living in this city. Are you going to sweep away the city for their sakes? What about the 50? Surely you would not do such a thing, destroying righteous with wicked. Why? You'd be treating the righteous and the wicked the same. Surely you wouldn't do that. You should not the judge of all the earth do it. Kind of questioning God's morals. And the Lord replies in verse 26, If I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I must spare the whole city for their sake. So Abraham... He's been, probably been there before, maybe visited Lot. So he starts saying, yeah, I know that the family down the road. I said, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to come up with 50. And so he, he says, well, um, since I've begun, verse 27, let me speak further to my Lord, even though I'm just dust and ashes. All of a sudden, he's getting a little bit more, a little bit more humble because he realizes I got to come back. That number wasn't a good starting point. He says, suppose there are only 45 righteous people rather than 50. Are you going to destroy them? And God says, you got 45 righteous people. I ain't doing it. Abraham, I still don't got 45. So Abraham pressed his request further. He says, suppose there is only 40. What does God say? Won't destroy for 40. Okay, please don't be angry, my Lord, Abraham pleaded. Let me speak. Suppose there's only 30 righteous people, and the Lord says, I'm not going to destroy it for 30. And then Abraham said, imagine if this is your kid. By now you're like, get to the point. Go play. Like, <laughs> I'm not going to do this. He says, uh, yeah, you know, suppose there's 30. He says, I, I dare to speak. Suppose there's only 20. Notice now he jumps down to 20. Lord says, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Finally, Abraham, imagine this conversation. Lord, please don't be angry with me. I'm just going to speak one more time. Suppose there's only 10 found there. Lord says, I will not destroy it for 10 people. 10 righteous people won't do it. Lord had finished his conversation with Abraham. He went on his way, and Abraham returned to his tent. What a powerful account of a conversation. I love this, too, in the fact that my God is very approachable. We can interact with him about our concerns. We can share our feelings with him. We don't have, there's not a certain way. You have to pray like me, and I have to pray like her, and she has to fight like him. That's not the case. Why? Because there was a relationship here already established. Don't come to God when you need something, why don't you establish the relationship today? So when it's time you need something, you already have to, we, we already have ongoing dialogue. But I got to thinking about this. Maybe some of you have thought about this before. Why did Abraham stop 
at 10. God was answering all. What about 50? No. 45? No. 40? No. 35? 30? 20? 10? No, 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 no. And he stops. Why? Could it be that in Abraham's head, he only placed significance on if there were 10 people? I mean, why not go all the way down? God, you're going to destroy the whole city. What about if there's one righteous person? And Abraham, did he, did he go, I only see value on 10 or more? Would you be willing to go somewhere and teach a Bible study to 10 people? But would you be as excited and willing to pay gas and to drive your car and take a weekday night to go teach one person? Would you be willing to drive and pick someone up for church and drive a, a good distance to get 10 people to bring them to church? But would we be as excited to drive the same distance and pick up one person for church? Could it be that maybe we got the mindset of Abraham without even knowing it, that we see value in numbers, but not in one? Sometimes this bleeds into church planting, because like I said, I've had people tell me, yeah, yeah, you know, I talk about unchurched communities. If you don't know, I serve our district, Missouri, the state of Missouri is our church planting coordinator, North American Missions Director. And I'll go places, and sometimes people say, yeah, but you're talking about unchurched counties, but those are counties that there's not a lot of people there. That's a pretty rural area. I don't know. Do we really need a, a work in that area? And I understand there's a lot of rural areas, but I'm of the belief that every single city and definitely every county deserves an apostolic church. One day, I can't wait till we say every city, when I say apostolic, that's not a man-made religion. I'm saying like the apostles taught. What did the apostles preach, teach, and live in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles? These are the people Jesus picked, and he commissioned, and he trained. So let's read about what did they do? How did they baptize? How did they pray? What did they believe about the Spirit? I want to align my life with that because the Acts of the Apostles shed light on theology, not just history. And so, I don't want to just be in every city. I want to work in every county. How about we start there? I don't know if you realize this or not, but October 1st, we're a part of this organization called the United Pentecostal Church International. And October 1st was the kickoff to our, our national campaign called Christmas for Christ. Now, typically, I'll touch on this later in December, but this year, I just really feel to touch on this a little early because I know sometimes I preach a message in the first week in December and say, and next week, we're taking up our Christmas for Christ offering, and people are like, oh, Lord, I already done my Christmas shopping. I, I have $7.28 left, and we'll give it to Jesus. Well, and if you did that, you probably did well, right? Sometimes our Christmas shopping, we pay for it like we're paying for it through next June. If we don't do it right. Like Dave Ramsey says, he says, people go, what? How did Christmas snuck up on me? Well, folks, it's the same date every single year. We can plan for it. 
But this year, we can plan for this. We can go, hang on, there's an offering that's coming up that's going to go help people plant new churches in unchurched and underchurched areas. What can we talk about in October? We could give it right now. There's a tab on the online giving. Or what, and not a dollar of that stays in this church. Every dollar is sent off to go help plant churches in North America. And 40% of that money stays in the state of Missouri. The other 60 goes to plant churches across all of North America. But if we say, hey, what can we plan on right now that we're going to give and begin to set aside? Because I want to be a part. Because God's going to call some of you. Even in this service, God's going to call some of you to plant a church. But if you're saying, oh, that's not for me. Some go by giving. Some give by going. And so you can, you can do this, but CFC goes to plant new works. And our district goal, you know, I talk about this all over the state of Missouri. And I thought, you know what? I'm not going to be someone who talks about this in every part of my state, but our own church doesn't even know about it. And so this morning, I just want to, this afternoon, I want to just take a, a few minutes to tell you about this. Our district goal is to have 300 works by 2030. 200 works by this next year in July. We currently have 182 works. As a district, we've broken records for five years straight, but this year, for the first time ever, our district is going to cross the $300,000 mark for Christmas for Christ, meaning all of the works in the state of Missouri, just years ago, we had never crossed 150. We went to 150, then we went to 192, then we went last year to 238,000. This year, our vision is to go over $300,000. Why does it matter? Because that, those resources are poured into people who feel a call from God to plant churches. And so for us, we've never just been about the local church. We certainly are. But the vision is always, it's beyond these four walls because the church is never a facility in one city. It's a people that are called by God to follow his mission. And so I committed our church. You might say, this is crazy, but I committed our church to do something we've never done before. No matter what, if we need to take it from the fund, we are, I, I said, our church, Refuge Church, even though we're in a building campaign, we will commit to at least $10,000 to Christmas for Christ. Why? Because our district vision is a thriving apostolic work in every community. And so that's the vision of the Missouri district. And I see value not only in one, but I see value in 10 and over in all of the numbers. I see value in one, two, three, four, eight, 12, 18. And it might start small. It might start churches start in people's living rooms all the time. But I want to see a thriving apostolic work in every community. I believe that God is calling this generation and also the next generation of young people. I believe that, that God, he spoke to me when I was 17 years old on a choir tour, and it set me on a path. I didn't instantaneously go from here to there overnight, but it set me on a path because it was one moment in one service, in one decision, that I am really believing that on these first couple rows here, there are some church planners, 
some people who in this service, just the next few moments while I'm still finishing up, that there's some people that are going to come to an altar call, some young men and some young ladies that are going to say, wait a second, if this is a need and God has given me his spirit and I'm a powerful young woman or young man of God, why in the world can I not go and plant that church? We got, I was talking to people, someone recently, and he was telling me how uh, his relative started a business and it now is 11 businesses under one umbrella and they did over $40 million of revenue last year and he's 20 years old, his business partner's 21. They had at that point a 14-year-old running and overseeing the operations of the business, but he had to go to school, so they had to hire somebody else. If 14-year-olds can manage over $40 million of assets, I believe that maybe some of you could go ahead and start some P7 clubs and start some churches and start some things that that are going to live on forever. But it's not just them, it's, it's anybody here that, 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 you know, we're not just looking to fill every pew here. We're looking to fill every seat here. We're looking to say, okay, who's going to go into the harvest? Who's going to be like Christ and say, I'm going to go looking for someone. I'm going to give if I need to. But maybe, maybe God's speaking to a young man or a woman or an older man or woman and saying, you know what? Wait a second. Why am I not out in the harvest? Why is it just about, that was a good service. Worship was okay. Sound was a little off. His preaching wasn't his best ever. I just didn't really like the energy level. You last night's event went a little late, so we're a little tired. No, it's not about just me and my preferences and my desires and how good my church is. This is about, God, what do you want to do in this end time? What do you want to do in this harvest? What, there are people who are hurting, hungry, looking. How can I be someone who's going to go take something to them? Church planning does not come because there's an open pulpit. Sometimes people think that. And, and if you're here as a, as a young man or a young woman going, man, God might have called me. I'm just waiting for God to open that door. And he's going to call me because, you know, somebody steps away from a pulpit and there's an open pulpit and I'm going to go find it. But that's not the case. It starts with plowing, planting seed, watering, it, harvesting. That's why God talks so much. Jesus, when he's walking around on earth, he's talking so much about sowing seed, the farmer, the, the harvest. He's talking about that because he wanted us to understand that there's a principle. And so right now, there might not be a pulpit. But who's in your life right now that doesn't know the truth about Jesus Christ and what he's done for them? Every one of us here has at least one of the following. Friends, family members, neighbors, coworkers, classmates. You might say, well, I got no friends. Okay. Bible says a man that has friends must show himself friendly. Remember that part. But let's say you don't. Your bloodline, you're related to someone. You might not always want to claim them but you're related to him. Is every person that you're related to right now in love with Jesus Christ, serving him with all their heart, soul, mind, strength, and spirit? If not, you got somebody you can reach. You working a job? You get someone at that job. I guarantee you probably are not working a place in employment where every single person on that job site is just in love with Jesus Christ. Some go, I don't believe in that. Why do you believe that? I'll tell you why. You got a moment? Let's, let's talk about it. We have neighbors. We have classmates. I don't think that these first two rows could stand up right now and say, 
Pastor, I don't know what you want me to do. Every single classmate in my school is in love with Jesus Christ. They go to church. They worship God. They believe the Bible. They're making it. I don't know what you want me to do. I can't reach anybody. In our path to the pulpit, don't look over the field. And so for us, we look at this and we say, how many people need Jesus? I would say, dare I say, that in our day and age, especially in this age group, but I would say in all of us, I would say, now certainly don't, don't twist my words and say, oh, he doesn't believe in preaching. My goodness, of course I believe in preaching. The Bible says we're saved by the foolishness of preaching. But dare I say that the pulpit is a far less effective way of reaching your friends, your family, neighbors, coworkers, classmates than a one-on-one conversation, sharing your testimony, teaching a home Bible study, inviting to a small group, having that interaction, meeting in a coffee house, going through the word, discussing your testimony, rather than just, I don't know what to do, so I invite them, they come, I sit them on a chair next to me and hope pastor's message hits home. There's power in that too. But God did not say, I called you to bring people to church. He said, I called you to make disciples. Meaning, I don't just bring someone, set them on a chair and go, hopefully the church does the rest. But I'm the one that's calling them. How you doing? Let's get together. You have any questions? Let's get, hey, what are you doing next Friday? Let's grab coffee. That we're making disciples. We're training somebody. We did not, you understand this in a physical principle, we did not have children and go, they're so cute. They're so adorable. And then say, I hope somebody trains them along the way. I hope somebody teaches them how to eat and change their clothes and brush their teeth. I don't know about you, but if I said to my kids, probably not so much Kier now, maybe the boys, hey, you don't have to brush your teeth, just do it when you feel like it. They might not do it morning and night every single day. You say, hey, make sure you do your hair, clean up your clothes, pick up your room. Somebody's got to teach them this. Well, guess what? Somebody walks into church and sits down on a chair next to you. They're not going to know, hey, how do I pray? How do I deal with issues? What about when someone offends me? What about prayer? What about fasting? What about, I, keep, he, I hear people talking about this. Why is that person getting baptized? What does that mean? Why is that important? Someone has to walk this journey with them. Imagine right now if you said, I am going to create 30 invitations, maybe 20 if you don't know, 20 invitations. I'm going to design something if you don't know. You can design something on Vistaprint. It's this easy. You bring up a thing. You choose a template. There's a text box there. You click the text box. You type in what you want, and it looks like you're a professional designer. And you can make a business card, a mini postcard, a big postcard, and you can make something and say, you know what? I'm going to go, and I'm going to get this in every person's hand that's on this list, my friends, neighbors, family members, coworkers, classmates. And you know, I'm not going to just say, well, I'll see what happens. I'm going to just kind of dabble in it. How about we say, we really believe this. I live this. I believe God's word is alive and powerful. And so three weeks from today, 
Choose something in your schedule. Tuesday night, Thursday night, Saturday morning, whatever works to say. At my house, at this coffee shop, whatever. We're starting a study of God's word. We're going to look at things. In, in, uh, it's not just, oh, Noah's boat. And why do I care about Noah's boat? No, because there's a theme on the ark that still is around in 2022 of grace, faith, and obedience. Let's talk about why God's word is still relevant to where we are today. And let's just get into a discussion about the best-selling book of all time in human history. Why don't we, if you, I just want to invite you. I would love for you to be a guest of mine to this discussion group. We're going to look through the word, and, uh, and, and, and I just would love to start that. It starts three weeks from now. Well, I know, but I don't know. I don't have anybody. Well, of course you don't have anybody. You haven't started anything. What about if you made the invitation, set the date, set the time, invited, handed out 25 or 30 invitations to everyone you know? Guess what? Realistically, 30 people are not going to be there. I wish they would. I used to have that kind of, woo, yes. It's not going to happen. But four might be there. Two might be there. One might be there. But is it worth driving every Tuesday night when you're busy, you got things to do? Well, I, I just, I can't teach right now because I have all these other things going on. What's the Great Commission? What's the Great Commission? I'm going to set that aside and I'm going to start it. And maybe somebody is going to show up. I think sometimes we're waiting going, yeah, I just, I just wish God would do something. I really, I'm desiring to use him. I want him to use me. And we expect somebody to just come like, to our house or our church door. Hey, I just felt this morning. I woke up and felt like I needed to be in this place, in this church, in this seat for this service. It happens. Praise God. I love when it happens. But he looked at us and said, go into the harvest. Go to the next town. I went looking for people. I went to try to find people. So what are we doing? Oh, I know. I, you know, I knew this was not going to be one of those messages where people are like, amen, preach, good word. Because it kind of hits right here. And we go, oh. But God's reaching to us to reach to someone else. Because you know what I've seen happen? is I've seen a lot of churches be born out of a Bible. It's the great way, greatest way to plant a church. Do you know right now, one of our target areas of the whole United Pentecostal Church is right up the road, right just a little bit away in Raytown. There's no presence in Raytown. Anybody know an individual that lives in Raytown, near Raytown, you work in Raytown? Anybody, you think about it, guess what? You say, let's get together. Let's go in the library. Let's get a side room. We'll, we'll start a Bible study. All of a sudden, you start inviting someone. You start praying over it. Those two people come. They, they're going to feel Jesus, hear about the word of God. They start inviting their friends. Next time, you get through 10 weeks. Next Bible study, you got six people. Wow, let's do this again. All of a sudden, you got 12 people. You got through a whole other Bible study. People are making a stand for God. And you say, you know what? Why don't you guys think once a month, let's start having a service. We'll bring in a little keyboard, sing some songs. I'm going to preach a message. And we're going to have a preaching point. It's not a full-blown church yet, but let's see where this thing goes. All of a sudden, those 12 people invite people. You got 18 people now. All of a sudden, before you know it, you got yourself a church, but we definitely don't have ourselves a church if we don't do anything. Let's say it doesn't become a church. Well, praise God, I taught someone a Bible study. No matter what, he's calling for us to go to the next town, to go knocking, to go looking, to go looking for someone around us. 
We can never get to the point where we have so much going on and we're so busy and we're so consumed that we have ceased the mission of Jesus Christ. Yeah. What about what would happen if we handed out 30 invitations? Could possibly one of your friends, neighbors, family members, co-workers or classmates, could they come? I think it's a great chance, isn't it? But our calling does not start in a pulpit. I'll just tell you right now publicly so nobody feels offended. Don't ever come to me and say, I feel called to preach. You want to have the conversation? That's fine. But I want you to know that, and you might be called to preach, and that's great. But my first conversation is it's not going to start in a pulpit. What are we doing right now to get into the field? I'm of the belief, and I said this at our, our, our district hyphen retreat last weekend. I told all these, I said it right in front of our district superintendent. He was sitting right there. I don't know if he agrees or not, but I said it. He's going to be here in a few weeks. You can ask him if you disagree. And I said, I said, I don't believe we should give anyone a ministerial license with the United Pentecostal Church International if they have not made a disciple or taught a Bible study. There's no need to stand in a pulpit if we have not gotten our hands into the harvest. And so, this is why I travel so much more this year. This is why between now and the end of the year, I'm speaking at five Christmas for Christ banquets and rallies in the state of Missouri. Not on Sundays, I'll be here, but this is why I'm doing this. Not because I'm sitting at home, my kids are driving me crazy, me and my wife are fighting and I'm bored and I wanna hit the road. It's not that. It's because I believe in this, because I wanna see more works, I wanna see more churches, I wanna see more church planners. The population in the state of Missouri is 6.2 million people. Missouri District currently has 182 works and there are 537 ministers in the state of Missouri. I thank God for ministers and ministers, but we don't just need more ministers. We need more churches. I wish, just for demonstration purposes, and I'm going to have to wrap up here soon, but just for demonstration purposes, let's imagine for a moment if every work had an average attendance weekly of 200 people, which I wish this was the case. A handful of Missouri churches are larger than this. Most are smaller. Lifeway.com actually states that the, lar- the average church attendance, every denomination in America right now is about 65 people. But for this purpose, let's just say, okay, let's triple the numbers. Let's say every UPCI church in the state of Missouri has 200 people. This would mean that every weekend in Missouri, 36,400 people are in church. Man, that would be awesome. Wow, that would be incredible. Guess what? It would still mean that there are 6,163,600 people unchurched in the state of Missouri. We need more churches. We need more people who feel a call from God 
to go out into the harvest and to plant churches. And I know there might be a handful watching online or here today, but I also know that really a target that I'm going after right now is these young people right here. So they know from a young age that they're going, I can do this. God's calling me. There's a burden. There's a need. Why can't I do it? We need more churches. Every church and every pastor has an admirable dream. What's our dream? To reach our city. I want to reach our city. I want to reach our city. Here in Liberty, we have a growing church, a bright future. We have plans to build. We have construction plans. And when I look around our city, I tell people, they go, wow, you guys are getting like 160 people out. You're building a new building. That's awesome. You're really doing a great work. Yeah, I praise God and I thank him for what he's doing. But I look around our area and I see booming growth. I, we probably got 50 restaurants here, two high schools. They're both both full. We got a college right up the road from us. Our population is growing to over 40,000 people just in the city limits with probably a million that could come to church on any given Sunday. And all, although our church is, is growing and we got 160 plus people, I look around and my heart breaks at the number in the harvest. If we were to reach 1% of our population, that would be like 400 people. Right now, we are reaching 0.4% of liberty. And if you're a guest here, I know you might be like, wow, this is a strange message. I was just kind of thinking something about God or the cross. We'll preach about that too, but I want you to know that we believe in the mission. We believe in the calling of God. We believe in what, what we feel like God spoke in his word. And so, yeah, I'm real passionate. I'm a person of vision that I want to see more works, more churches, more people's lives touched and saved and changed. But here's the sad reality based on this. You might say, I can't believe you just said this, but here's the sad reality Refuge Church, we will never reach our city. I know some of you are like, I can't believe you just said that. If we grew to 4,000 people as a church, that'd be pretty awesome. Man, we went from 160 to 4,000. I'd really be getting asked to speak some conferences. My goodness. At 4,000 people, we'd still be only getting about 10% of the whole community. We need more churches. The days of being territorial are done. Somebody says, I have a call to plant a church in Liberty. I'm not going to our district board to fight them. I go, that's my territory. They don't need to come into our territory. They, that, that's my city. Until I have 40,000 people in our church... I need to just shut my mouth and say, come on in. Matter of fact, matter of fact, we will take you on as a monthly financial partner and support you in your endeavor to get a work up and running. That's somebody outside. That's somebody in the church. Go ahead. Go plant another church. Go plant a church anywhere. Do it in the only, on the other side of town here in Liberty if you want. We've got to have more churches. I don't see people going, well, we got a McDonald's over here and a McDonald's over there. They need to fight each other. Yeah, right. There's enough business for both McDonald's, both Starbucks, because people are looking and they don't want to drive too far from their house. We got to have more churches. The state of Missouri has 114 counties in an independent city, not cities, 114 counties. 
And in spite of our efforts and our growth in Missouri, there are still 32 counties that do not have a UPCI presence. That means in this great state of Missouri, 32 of those counties, that's cities that are gathered together in one county, they do not have anywhere that they can drive like you could drive to say, I'm going to go to church today. I'm going to go worship God today in this United Pentecostal Church, this apostolic church. 32 full counties with no work. Several years ago, and the, whoever's playing keyboard can come. Several years ago, many of you would probably remember him. His name was Brian. He lived with some people, and he had COPD. He was a rougher, and he, I invited him to a Bible study along with his roommates. He said, no, 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 I, want, I don't want no Bible study. So I would drive over and I would teach a Bible study. And she would listen. She had kids and he refused to sit in the Bible study. But I would get done with the Bible study and he'd walk in from the kitchen. He goes, I have a question about that. Would not sit in the Bible study. But he sat in the kitchen and listened to the Bible study. And God gave us a promise. His word doesn't come back void. When I teach Bible studies, my goal in lesson one is to just get someone to come back to lesson two. That's it. Because I know God's word's alive. It'll, it'll speak to people. I just need to not be offensive and keep it interesting. And so he ended up coming a few times. Well, all of a sudden, he showed up at a church service. And all of a sudden, he came up to me and he said, you know, Pastor, I think I'm going to get baptized. He got baptized. Filled with the Spirit of God. But then they had to move. He was on disability and he kind of moved where the roommates moved and they moved to another state, I won't say where. And he called me one day, broken, hurting. He said, Pastor Man, I'm, I'm struggling. I said, Brian, bro, I was praying with him, talking on the phone. I said, you've got to get back in a, in a church. He says, you're right, you're right, you're right. I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it this Sunday. I said, well, do you know where you're going? I don't. I said, well, give me your address. Let me put it in the church locator. I'm going to find you a church. And I'm pumped. I'm like, yes, he's going back to church. This is awesome. Brian gives me his address. I type it in. I'm like, no, 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 hang on. I think I got it wrong. Give me your address again. He gives me his address. And the closest UPC church was 91.5 miles away. He said, Pastor, man, I don't, got, I don't got a good car. I can't drive 91 and a half miles every week. That was one of the most hopeless conversations I feel like I've been a part of. Because you're too far for me to help live in where you were living. And the closest church to his residence was almost 92 miles away. And I say that because I'm like... That should never happen. That should never happen. Everybody should have an opportunity to go and hear the message of Acts 2.38. Should be able to go hear a message about the mighty God in Christ, how Jesus Christ is God manifest in flesh. 
but how he died on a cross and paid the price for their lives and he can bring hope to their situation in there. And all I said was, well, I, I guess we could try to talk and hey, try and tune in online and I never will forget that conversation, how dejected I felt to go, God, we've got to have more churches. And I feel like God's going, I totally agree with you. But pray that someone will go into the harvest. Not pray that someone waits for the next pulpit to open up. You got to call a God on your life. Go, go, go muster up a Bible study. Go teach a Bible study. If we're hunting, we don't just go, well, I'm just going to go show up and see if God brings me a deer. Man, we're searching things, putting on cameras and feed and setting up lines and doing all this stuff. I don't hunt, but it sounds like I know what I'm talking about. Because I'm going to go find what I'm going to get. The only thing worse than being lost is being lost and no one's even looking for you. Let that not be said of anyone in our circle. Oh, I don't know if I'm going to be roping off chairs and rows yet, but you know what? I'm looking. I'm looking for somebody that's hurting, that's broken. How are we going to get more churches? We only get them when a man or a woman of God is called by him. A burden for lost souls is in their, in their heart at a service just like this. To me, if just one person today in person or online says, I feel something. God's stirring my heart. I feel like he's calling me. I feel like I can do this. I'm looking in the eyes of people that I want you to know. I am not trying to tie you down, hold you here. Of course, I want you to make a difference here. We want to grow this church, see God do things in liberty. But what I want is see hands in the harvest. I want, I'm looking at people that I believe you're called to plant churches. I believe that you're called to go in unchurched or underchurched communities. I believe that you can start going right now. Well, where do I start, Pastor? Drive to Raytown. Drive into cities where you know there's not a church. Start to drive around. Stop at the library. Go to gas stations. Stop at restaurants. Go, God, Lord, let, let me connect with somebody here today. Lord, open a door for me today. You know what? We don't do this a lot because we're so busy because we're so busy with so many things. But what, what would happen if we just went in and just started to drive through communities? God, somebody here is hurting. Somebody here is hungry. Somebody here is looking. Somebody saying, God, if you're real, help me. There's somebody that's that. And God, help me right now as I drive through. Put a burden. If this is a place for me, put a burden in my heart. Open up a door for me to teach a Bible study. Open up a door for me to have a connection with somebody at a restaurant, at a Starbucks, at a grocery store. It might be a place where, you know what, there's not even one of those in there because it's a rural area. If you're a rural area person you might be driving through and rural areas are so much about connection about about trusting people you can begin to drive through and say you know maybe it's time for me to get an apartment in this area that we start thinking about the mission why because the pulpit might not be calling right now not yet but you know it's calling a living room a library a college classroom and God is looking for someone right now that's going to get creative God is reaching to someone right now and you know, you say, well, that's not for me. Well, you know what? We're going to be a part of Christmas for Christ. We're going to give. We're going to, so that the people who do feel that call, they're going to go out into the harvest. 
But today as you stand to your feet, I'm just praying to God. God, give me at least just out of this service, give me at least one or two people. Give me at least one or two people that say, I'm called by God. God's speaking to me right now. You ain't going to be planting a church probably next week, but you know what? Years down the road, once your church is up and running, you're pastoring, you're, you're telling people the story about how you planted and what you did and when you started and where it started, you can point back to an October day in 2022 where you say, you know what? I went to an altar, pastor preached some kind of a message, and there's something in me that just turned, that said, what am I doing, God? I want to be a part of this. I felt the divine unction of God in my spirit that said, you are called to plant a church. And it starts right now with getting your hands in a harvest. I invite you right now to find a place to pray, to find a place to where you can find and go, God, I don't want 32 counties in the state where I live to not have any presence of an apostolic church. I don't want that. What can I do? God, put someone in my path. God, give me something. Help me to step out. Help me to do something, Lord. I don't want to just be content just going to camps, conferences, and good services and hoping they sing my favorite song or preach a good message or get us out of here at a good time. No, this is way more. This is about the mission. This is about what you're calling us to do as a church. Speak to a church planner today, Lord. Speak to someone right now today. Call them in a way that only you can call them, Jesus. Give myself